Your children might have questions today after church because we're getting into the thick of it today. Judges 2 starts to get really heavy because in a lot of ways, chapter 2 of the book of Judges is setting the stage for this repeated pattern we're about to see throughout the rest of the book. Israel follows the Lord. They serve the Lord. Then they begin to follow the ways of the surrounding peoples. Then they fall into idol worship. Then they fall into captivity. Then they call on the Lord, and the Lord sends a judge and rescue them, rescues them from captivity. Then they forget about that, and they fall back into sin. And they follow idols, and they fall back into captivity. And so they call on the Lord, and the Lord sends a judge, and the judge rescues them. And they forget about that over and over and over again. The hardest part about the book of Judges is that it is truly a mirror. And as we look at what the Israelites did, we see ourselves, how we are so easily led astray back into sin, forgetting the goodness of God, forgetting what the Lord has done, and of course, having to call upon him for rescue. We're going to be in chapter 2 quite a bit, so if you just want to keep your finger there in, in your Bible this morning. Verses 18 and 19 in chapter 2 really sets the stage for this repeated pattern. Verse 18 says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those afflicted and oppressed uh, them, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices of their stubborn ways over and over again. And we have to ask, how can God's people fall so far? How is it possible to see God work and then end up in captivity by worshiping false gods? Or a better question, how can we not do this? There's a lot to be learned from chapter 2. Let's get into it. First thing, if we want to avoid this captivity, if we want to avoid this pattern, first thing is we need to remember what God has done. How, how can the Israelites go from fighting for truth, literally in the army of the Lord, living for the glory of the one true God into idol worship? It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen immediately. It all starts with forgetting what God had done. Look at verse 7 of Judges 2. It says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done. Israel. That's great. This is a nation following the Lord, but you go just a few more verses. Verse 10 says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. These are the, the people that served alongside Joshua. They all eventually passed away, and there arose another generation. What was so specific about them? Well, they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This verse is not at all saying that the people had never heard of the works of the Lord. It's really pointing more towards them not having an intimate knowledge of the works of the Lord. My friends, there is no such thing as a grandchild of God. You understand that? God has children. God does not have grandchildren. So we must each have our own personal relationship with the Father. We can't learn by osmosis. We have got to walk with the Lord and see what he does in our lives. We, we build up in our minds this track record that the, that the Lord has done for us. And we go back to that in the dark times, in, in the confusing times. And that's why biblical literacy is so important. We're lacking that greatly these days. 
It's not only knowing what happened in the Bible, but getting deeper than that. What does it mean? What do we do with that? How do we apply it? This is a confusing, confusing world. And it's always changing. And we need some sort of strong foundation. We need to be able to recognize the lies. And the only way we can recognize the lies is by knowing the truth. So a long time ago, God set a plan in motion to protect his people, starting with Israel and including us. This is a big one for parents in Deuteronomy chapter 6. God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And what do we do with them? Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Know that every word in this book is theonoustos, God-breathed, specifically chosen. And God says, teach them diligently to your children, not passively. It's more than Sunday school. Yeah, put your kids in Sunday school, children's church. That's great as a supplement to what we're giving them at home. Diligent teaching. It continues, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The ways of the Lord, the work of the Lord, the word of the Lord is supposed to be just part of our, our vernacular. It's a thing that we're thinking about and talking about. And so as we're guiding our children, we're, through a biblical lens, teaching them about the Lord and, through, and about the world around us. But God gives a warning, and this will be on the screen. Do these things, but be warned. Verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers. This is what's happening in Judges 2. To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care. Why? Lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Christian, there is a huge danger in being too comfortable. When things are too easy, we can actually take the good things of God the blessings of God and misuse them and use them for leisure. We get out of the habit of serving and sacrificing. What does that lead to? Forgetting. He tells Israel, you're going to have all this stuff I'm giving you. Clean water, plenty of food, a place to live, vineyards, it's all there. Be careful though, because you might forget how you got there. Some of you in this building have been a Christian for decades, upon decades. Don't ever forget what God saved you from. Don't forget the Lord. That's what protects us from falling into idolatry. Worldwide, some of the most passionate, joyful Christians you'll find are those living in the countries where it's most difficult to be a Christian. Muslim countries, communist countries, where you're not even allowed to gather as believers. 
places where you're not even allowed to own a Bible. They have to smuggle Bible pages in. They memorize them and, and tell each other and then write them down. And when their houses are ready, they have to hide the papers to not go to prison. In those countries, you don't have to beg people to serve and to show up. You can't stop them because they've never forgotten what the Lord is doing. They treasure it. They walk in it. My friends, we must remember what God has done. We see God's own people, Israel, the Bible says they went after other gods. Look at verse 11. Judges 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Don't answer out loud. I just want you to think about this. When you hear the phrase evil in the sight of the Lord, what comes to mind? I'll let you think about it. We probably think of sins of commission. Um, to illustrate or to define, sins of commission are things that we do that are sin. God says, don't steal. We steal, we've committed a sin. Then there are the sins of omission where God says, do this, and we don't such as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bear one another's burdens. Do those things. When we, when we disobey that way, it's less visible because we're not doing anything. But if you're any like, anything like me, the sin of others bothers you more than your own sin. That's what we do in our sinfulness. We're selfish, and we don't like to be, be bothered. And so, you know, people that sin like I do, I'm less bothered by that. But people that choose other sins, the ones that I really don't like, well, it just seems wrong. That's where we get with our sinful minds. Let's define this. Evil in the sight of the Lord. He sets the standard, not us. It doesn't matter what I'm okay with. God decides what is good and what is evil. So I want to define a couple things this morning. Because we're talking, you'll hear a lot about idol worship throughout the rest of the book. You'll hear about different names of different peoples and different gods, but one that will come up over and over again is Baal. So to, to define it, the name Baal does not specifically talk about one particular idol. Baal is actually an honorific, an honorific meaning a word like sir, ma'am, mister, missus. It's a title of respect. And the word Baal in different forms is used in, in certain, you know, in, in some of the ancient languages that are, you know, such as Aramaic, there are forms of Baal used in some of the other Middle Eastern languages even today, primarily in their more formal forms. But it just means master or Lord. And so over and over in the Old Testament, you see they serve the Baals. They're talking about whatever specific idol that people group worshipped in that area at that particular time. And so you get words like Baalzebub that you hear about in the Old and New Testament. That's the Lord of the flies. So every Baal something is Lord of whatever, Lord of blank. How do we end up following these gods? Well, our evil actions begin when our hearts turn away. But our hearts don't turn away until our minds turn away. We begin to hear and believe and follow the ways of the world. We don't bow our knees to these false gods until we first bow our hearts and minds. And the Israelites, we see over and over again, submitted themselves to whatever the local culture was doing, which led to them worshiping whatever the people around them worshipped. We've got to stick with the Bible. Biblical literacy is so important to be able to know what is true, what is a lie, what's the right way to live, what's the right way to view the world. No matter, the, It doesn't matter that everything's changing. God's word does not change. God does not change, and so we stand on him, and we stand on his word. 
They bowed to false gods. There's this progression in the language of Judges 2. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They went after other gods. Verse 12 says they abandoned the Lord. It gets more and more active and aggressive. They're actively following false gods. And verses 16 and 17 really clarifies the way that God sees this. Look at that, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Other translations say prostituted themselves after other gods. That's strong wordage. We tend to shy away from strong wording like that. We prefer things like weakness, you know. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I got to work it again and again till I get it right. Who was that theologian? Hannah Montana. Ever heard of her? (laughs) Because if she had said, nobody's perfect, we whore after false gods, that would have changed the trajectory of her career. Disney would have not been happy. However, it's absolutely true. That's how God sees it. This is not some game where we can just keep one foot in the world and one foot in godliness. God does not share our devotion. God does not share his glory. When we follow after idols, when we put our own idols, whether it's consumerism or individualism or materialism or actual statues, we are whoring ourselves out to other gods. That's how God sees it. Don't get that mixed up. Follow the history of Israel. What happens every time? They're following the Lord. They begin to stray away. They submit themselves to the gods of the people surrounding them. What happens next? Peace, joy, happiness. I did what I was told. Now everything's great, right? No. They submit to the peoples around them, and they get enslaved anyway. That's how sin works. That's how Satan works. How much of you does Satan want? More. How much of your time and devotion does Satan want? More. How much of your children does Satan want? Their minds, their hearts, their futures. More, 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 more. The promise of worldliness and sin is always freedom, but the result is always the same. Slavery and bondage. What does turning from the Lord look like? Look at Judges chapter 3, verse 6. God lays it out very clearly. My people, don't do this. I'm sending judges. Call on me and I will rescue you. Follow me and I will protect you. I will go with you into battle. You will be victorious. Then we get to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. They're surrounded by all these people, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and their daughters, these other peoples, they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, 170 years before Judges chapter 2, God tells his people, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly, giving our children away. What descriptive language. Giving our children over in marriage. Marriage is a human picture of salvation, that we are presented to Christ as his bride, 
white and clean. And with great celebration, we are brought into his family. We are brought into his love. And God's saying, but don't give your children away to these false gods. Canaanite is a broad term. It wasn't just one group of people. The land was called Canaan. And in the land of Canaan, there were different people groups. And so when you read Canaanites, it's talking about all of them broadly, the different specific tribes and groups. And there were three broad categories of how worship looked in those days among the false Canaanite gods. Three broad categories. Sexual immorality, body mutilation, and child sacrifice. If you think the Bible is an outdated, antiquated book that is not relevant today, read Judges. Sexual immorality, body mutilation, child sacrifice. Regarding sexual immorality, Asherah was a female deity. So if you read about the Asherah poles, they would plant a tree, and then as it grew, they would cut off the branches, and so they would just have this pole growing out of the ground, and they would carve images into the pole. That was the Asherah pole. Asherah was a female goddess, moon goddess, fertility goddess, and throughout different people groups and different types of idolatry, typically the female goddess or the goddess of fertility is always worshipped with sexual morality and sensualism. It's about giving in to pleasures, giving your body, giving yourself over in the moment, making yourself a sacrifice of sexuality. And we can look back on those people groups and we think of, you know, antiquated pagans, jumping around a fire with spears. And we miss out on what we do in our own culture. I was thinking about Billy Joel's song, Only the Good Die Young. It made me think, how many popular songs are written by men trying to convince women to have sex with them that don't want to? And that whole song is written about a girl named Virginia, symbolic language there. And throughout the entire song, he completely trashes her Catholic faith, he trashes her family, he trashes her views, he trashes her, her desire to remain pure and a virgin, and even says, you know what's going to happen eventually? Might as well be me. Give in. Give in to the sensuality. It happens to this day. Body mutilation. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we won't go there today, but write it down, look it up later. Elijah goes toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of Baal. And he's trying to make an example to the people of Israel not to follow Baal, because he can't hear you, and he can't do anything for you. Follow the God of Israel. So Elijah sets up a challenge. All right, prophets of Baal, build an altar. I'll build an altar. And then we'll both take a calf and sacrifice it and put it on the altar. And then we'll call upon our gods and see who will send down fire to consume the sacrifice. And so we read in that chapter that the prophets of Baal make this altar and they put the bull on it. And all day long, they're dancing and shouting, Oh, Baal, hear us. Respond to us. And the Bible says they begin to cut themselves as was their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. That was part of it. Changing your body to please this God, Baal. Now we know how the story ends. Elijah mocks them, and he says, I, I, I think Elijah and I could be buddies. Just, I'd, I'd love to hang out with him. He says, uh, maybe your God's in the bathroom. <laughs> maybe we should knock. Knock, knock, knock on heaven's door. Is that what that's talking about? The bathroom? 
Maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe you should cry louder. Yell more all day long. So then what Elijah does, they build a trench around the altar, fill it up with water, very humbly and quietly says, Lord, we call on you. The one true God, show your power, show your might. And God sends down fire from heaven and the wet altar is consumed with flames. And, and Elijah says to the people, this is the God we follow. You wanna hear something crazy? That was 500 years after Judges chapter two. And he's still having to tell the people, don't follow Baal, follow the one true God. This uh, Judges two is happening about 1375 BC. So we're about 3,400 years later than that. How about child sacrifice? Molech was one of the gods worshiped in that land and if you've seen pictures, Molech was a statue, massive statue, with the body and arms of a man outstretched like this and the head of a bull. And inside this hollow idol would be a fire and people would pass their children, parents, from their own arms through the arms of the idol and into the fire to their death. And men would be surrounding the idol, chanting and beating drums to drown out the cries of the children. Jeremiah 19, God speaks directly to this. Verses 4 and 5, God says, They have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built high places to Baal, on which to burn their children in the fire as a burnt offering, as burnt offerings to Baal. Something I never have commanded, I never entertained the thought. Worship of the one true God has always been quite different than worship of the surrounding idols. God has, has never called on us to sacrifice our children. He sacrificed his son. God has never called on us to cut our bodies and bleed for him. He sent his son to bleed for us. It's quite different. There's a distinction that we must always make. Jeremiah 19 was 700 years after Judges 2. And God is still saying, my people, why are you sacrificing your children? We've covered this. It does nothing. Serve me. And we as modern humans, we can, we can look back with, with such superiority on these historical accounts. We, we would never do that. We would never really stand for that. Really? Since 1973, approximately 64 million, 64 million American children, we don't even have the global numbers, have been killed legally through abortion. No huge statue. No beating drums, and we've stood by in silence. We've stood by with our votes of approval, and we've lied to ourselves about what's really going on. Abortion is simultaneously a simple and complicated issue, and I would really beg you to let me explain. You feel the tension right now? I mean, shoulders are raised. They should be. Abortion as an issue is simple because of what it actually is. It's complicated because of what people think it is and why they have them. We've diluted the reality of what happens when a baby is aborted by denying biblical truth and scientific fact. 
The Bible uses words like knit together in our mother's womb. That's Psalm 139. And so if we make um, the development of a zygote, an embryo, a fetus, just a biological process, we're missing out on, on God actually knitting together a child. Your cells were placed together by the hand of God. Knit together in your mother's womb. And we've denied science by believing that the baby is not a person, but simply a cluster of cells or a blob that's just another part of the woman's body, no different than an arm or a leg or a tumor. The science is very clear. When the sperm and egg meet at that very instant, the zygote is formed, and the zygote has distinct DNA. Human DNA, distinct from the mother, distinct from the father, it is a person, it is a child made in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth. When we forget that, it changes the rules. Because if it's just a blob, who cares? Then we can call it health care for women. If it's just removing a blob that you don't want, okay, go for it. But it's not. It's a person, and so we have to approach it differently. This is an important conversation, and a difficult conversation. I've had it where it went well, and it went poorly. And it's easy for us to separate into these two extremist camps. We who are far on the pro-life side, it's much easier to imagine the, and this happened just a couple years ago at the Women's March, is some celebrity giving a speech, unhinged, bragging about abortion, and how her life was so much better because of her abortions. I have dear friends who have had abortions, ladies who've had abortions, men who have encouraged and stood by while their child was aborted, applauded it, they're not like that. That's not where they fall. There's a lot of hurt, a lot of sorrow, and a lot of regret. But then the other side looks at us in the pro-life camp as just the people with the big signs of a burned and dismembered body yelling, murderer, murderer, murderer. So the difficulty is the conversation starting point is maybe how we see them and how they see us. But we have to approach it humbly, gracefully, lovingly, and intelligently. And one way we, we do that is we, if we have to look at it beyond an act, but an issue of the mind and heart. So when I say intelligently, I mean not only just using people skills and common sense and how you approach people. If someone's just unhinged and there's not a lot you can do, love them, be patient with them. Um, but I can think of very specific examples of people that I know that had suffered through this and they're not the one on stage bragging about it. That's why I say it's a complicated issue, because it's complicated when a young woman is convinced it's just a blob, and if you let this child be born, then it's gonna take away from your life, and you'll never get to achieve what you wanna achieve, and so it's best to address it now, take care of it now. And they're lied to, and then 10 years later, 20 years later, 50 years later, they still think about it. Never had a wart or tumor removed and then five decades later go, oh, what could have been? Because we know. So we've got to approach these people with love. Love is also telling people the truth and so we cannot submit ourselves to untrue, unscientific, unbiblical language of just cluster of cells and health care. It's not health care for the baby. It's just not. 
I can think of specific women that I love dearly. Um, here's why it's complicated. How about a 13-year-old girl raped repeatedly by her father? Taken to the clinic. And it happens again. And again. And again. And by the time she's 20, she's been impregnated multiple times by her own father and had the, had the babies aborted. How about the young lady who mother sold to men and impregnated. The mom takes her to the clinic and is taken care of again and again and again. And we somehow think if we just We just somehow say murderer enough. They're going to come around. Now, see, we're all guilty of murder because the Son of God died for my sin. His blood is on my hands. He died because of me. So know when you're having this difficult conversation, you're likely talking to someone who's trapped because they're afraid to admit to it here because they don't want to be scorned and judged. And they can't admit it to the pro-abortion side because then they're going to be ridiculed for not being proud of it. They're stuck. They suffer in silence. We love them because we are a forgiven people. God can forgive us of all sin, including child sacrifice and then we speak the truth boldly and in love to stop it's not a blob of cells it is a child and that's why we don't do it enter it humbly patiently gracefully intelligently but we must stand up for the unborn it's not just a big altar with fire it could be that the rapist walks free the young lady is broken and bruised, and the baby is put to death. That's how serious it is. We've got to speak the truth. We've got to be like Joshua, and we need Joshua's to speak the truth in love and boldly. Under Joshua, Israel served the Lord. Joshua dies, and then the elders die, and then we see in verse 10, another generation that didn't know the works of the Lord. A people that forgot. In Leviticus chapter 10, we see that God had put this system in place to avoid that. In Leviticus chapter 10, the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. 
Talk about it. Teach it over and over and over again. Because when you don't, people forget. Joshua's life message can basically be encapsulated in two verses. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, this is Joshua standing before the people of Israel. He is a victorious military leader that has fought for God and God's name and God's people over and over. And what does he say? Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, without people like Joshua, we wander. We are sheep, whether we want to admit it or not. The Bible never calls us dolphins. Dolphins are too intelligent. We are followers, and we're all following something, and we need people like Joshua. God created us all to be at the same time leaders and followers. We are both. We are to be bold, to teach and correct and love. We are to be humble, to listen and be taught and be corrected. No one is exempt. We are all people of authority and under authority. And if you grew up in a church where that wasn't the case, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you grew up where a pastor did not answer to anyone. That's one of the many reasons we have a plurality of elders here. Every one of our pastors is under authority. They are accountable to God, his word, and his people. It protects us as the church to have men of authority under authority Joshua was a bold leader. He didn't say, hey, Israel, I know you have these other gods, and that's cool. Nothing wrong with your statues. I wouldn't want to, you know, I'm not one of those Christians. I don't want to offend you. Uh, But if it's okay with you, it doesn't upset you, I would like to follow the Lord. But, But not in like an offensive way or something. Now, Lying in the sand. We have to choose, ladies and gentlemen. There is no in-between. We serve the gods of this world or we serve the one true God. Joshua spoke what was true and demonstrated what was right. When you have someone in your life that passionately serves Jesus, it's inspiring. Those are the people we look to. Those are the people we call upon when we're suffering, when we're struggling. Someone that we know has walked consistently with the Lord. And my friends, by the power of the Spirit, this can be you. And this can be me. Because that Christian that you look up to has the same Holy Spirit that you have. And just like God has grown and empowered them, he can do the same for us, that we can lead and stand firm like Joshua. Godly leadership is a gift and an example of the goodness of God. The Israelites over and over and over again are falling into sin and idol worship. And what does God do? Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand who plundered them. We saw it already. Verse 17, yet they did not listen (laughs) to the judges. Never forget we are accountable to God to serve and obey him. We are not accountable for results. 
crazy thing happens throughout the book of Judges. It covers about 400 years in history. There's 12 judges listed in the book. There are other places in the Bible where people are called judges. Samuel, Samuel's sons, which were total reprobates. They were called, they judged Israel, is what the Bible says. But the book of Judges has 12. And if you look at the progression, they get worse and worse as the book goes on. They weren't all godly people. Some of them, like Samson, were completely ungodly. Wait till we get to Samson. The guy was completely impulsive, no self-control, prideful, vengeful. He was not a godly man. But what do we see? God used the judges and rescued his people from their enemies. So what do we make of this? Well, we should strive to be the best we can be for the glory of God. We should strive to be the best parents we can be, to be an example to our children, to teach our children and show our children the ways of the Lord, but also knowing that it's not about what we do. Because God is so good. He can work for us, through us, even in our failures. And if we are willing to be open about our sin and open about our failures, we're highlighting the goodness and grace of God to those around us. We need Joshua's. And Joshua is a great name. It's transliterated. So translation is when you take a word and make it into a different language. So queso in Spanish, cheese in English. Trans, yeah, I mean, that's all the Spanish I know. And it's important. Yes, I'll have queso. Gracias. Transliterated is when we take a word from one language and then we copy the sounds of it and we phonetically put it in a different language. So in Hebrew... Joshua is originally Jehoshua. There's also a shortened version found in a lot of the Old Testament manuscripts of Yeshua. So Joshua, Jehoshua, Yeshua. And so if we transliterate Yeshua into English directly from Hebrew, it's, it kind of becomes Joshua. Because there are sounds and there are, are, are vocal movements in Hebrew that we don't have in English. And so we just make it sound American, English. But what I found so fun is that if you take that word Joshua and look at the meaning, it means the Lord is deliverance or the Lord is salvation. And so God makes a man and through his life and his name shows, I am your deliverance. I am your salvation. And if we take that name, Yahashua and Yeshua, and we take it from Hebrew and then we go to Koine Greek, which is the language that was used in the time of Christ. And so we had the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in Koine Greek. But then you also have Aramaic, which is the common language spoken in Judea in the time of Christ. Then you also have Greek, which is the common language spoken in the whole region during the time of Christ. And then you have Latin, and eventually the English. If you take Yahashua, Yeshua, mix in some Greek, throw in some Latin, bring it to English, we reach an exciting conclusion. Because in Matthew chapter 1, an angel appears to a man named Joseph to tell him his virgin fiance Mary will give birth to the Son of God. Listen to this. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua. Joshua. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Ladies and gentlemen, in our failure, we have a better Joshua. There is a deliverer that is better than Joshua. Jesus is the greatest, most powerful, and final judge. Revelation chapter 19, 11. 
John said, I saw the heaven open. It was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. He judges and makes war in righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may give it, uh, receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus is a better Joshua because he can rescue us not only from the enemy around us, but from our worst enemy, our own sin, our own hearts. Jesus can rescue us from our sin. Some of us were raised in godly homes where we could see numerous godly examples around us. You had Joshua's. Some of us were raised in ungodly, immoral, abusive homes where there were no godly examples to be seen. So we're left to wonder, if we didn't all have Joshua's growing up, how did we get here today in the same room? Because there's a better Joshua. And even when you didn't know he existed, he was fighting for you. He was fighting the enemies around you. He was fighting the enemy inside you. And if you look at the name Joshua, the Lord of salvation, in the Old Testament, that man was pointing to someone else. But in Jesus, he, the Lord, is our deliverance and our salvation. And we worship him this morning. We have a better Joshua. He provides salvation perfectly. He provides deliverance that no enemy can overcome. Victory that no other leader can achieve, and an inheritance that no thief can steal. Jesus is the better Joshua. Throughout the next 18 chapters, we are going to see a lot of sin and failure, idolatry, repentance, deliverance, more sin, over and over ad nauseum. What we'll see is ourselves, and our sin, best of all, we're going to see the goodness and grace of God, that he responds to the cries of his people and delivers them from their troubles. He did it back then, over 3,000 years ago, and he'll do it right now for you, my friend. There is no sin too great to be forgiven. You cannot be too lost or too far gone to not be brought back in because he is pursuing you to bring you into his fold. That's our Jesus better Joshua. I would encourage all of us to be humble as we go forward to see ourselves. May we humbly learn from God's word. May we allow God to draw us to himself. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness that we are not left to wonder which God is the true God and we are not called upon to sacrifice our children and mutilate our bodies to please you, but God, you gave your son whose body was broken, who bled for us, that we could become yours in your family, in your kingdom. Lord, we come to you this morning with a lot of hurt and regret. We've bowed down to idols. We've sacrificed our children. We've turned our hearts away from you. We bow the knee to the false god of this world. Help us, Father, to boldly break down and shatter the altars and idols in our hearts, that you would reign supreme, alone, on the throne of our hearts and our lives. Please do a great work in our midst this morning. We praise your great name. 
Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name.